The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Dr. Reshma Shah. She is a board-certified pediatrician and co-author of the award-winning book, Nourish, the definitive plant-based nutrition guide for families, which she co-authored with a dear colleague of mine, registered dietitian Brenda Davis. Dr. Shaw obtained her undergraduate and master's in public health degrees from Johns Hopkins University and her medical degree from Drexel University College of Medicine. She is a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Environmental Health and Climate Change. She has over two decades of experience caring for children, and she currently serves as an instructor for Stanford's Healthy Living Program She oversees the nutrition curriculum for the Stanford University's Pediatric Integrative Medicine Fellowship. Welcome, Dr. Shaw. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. I have been so curious about medical schools and nutrition education, and it's so curious to me that Hippocrates, the father of medicine, said, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. And yet, It's been my understanding that most medical schools do not have a rigorous nutrition training. Has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. The Institute of Medicine actually recommends that during the course of your four years of medical school, that students should receive about 25 hours of nutrition education. And very few schools meet that even minimum criteria in terms of nutrition education. And it really is quite stunning and remarkable that physicians are a trusted resource when it comes to nutrition information, yet they receive very little training, if any, with regards to how to do that. What I love is that you have partnered with a registered dietitian, because when I think about my own clinical days, it was the dietitian who was really practicing food as medicine And with a cooperative physician, we really made a synergistic team. And so I love that you've combined forces in this book. I am curious to know, because you do have decades of experience working with families, what kinds of trends in children's health have you seen over the years? I think that caring for patients and working with families, I've realized that families face a lot of struggles when it comes to not just feeding their children adequately, but just caring for them in general. I think that kids today are experiencing a greater amount of stress, a greater amount of anxiety, and this really causes families to not have the capacity to plan meals, to shop for meals, and perhaps even most importantly, to sit down for regular family meals. And so I have a lot of empathy for families that are facing struggles and working really hard to nourish their families in a way that's sustainable and promotes health. And so I think that with increasing rates of stress, anxiety, competing schedules, a rise in food allergies, I mean, I think 
today's parents are really facing a lot of challenges when it comes to making mealtimes happen and feeding their families in a nourishing way. Well, you spent most of your time with the pediatric clientele in Cleveland, Ohio. And now, of course, you're living in sunny California and the food systems are quite different. Although I think that for economic purposes, families are living in poverty everywhere. And it's my own experience that when I go to see a care provider or a doctor, the way that our medical system is established, we have, what, 15 minutes with a doctor. Tell me how you're able to navigate caring for a child and providing attention to diet and other life environment situations where you can really provide that family the care that they need. It's a tremendous challenge. And um, I'm actually no longer practicing clinically. And one of the reasons is because it is very difficult to address all of those needs within the span of a 15-minute office visit. I think that there are two critical pieces. The first is really trying to establish a relationship with the family. Because in 15 minutes, there's no way that you're going to accomplish all that you need to accomplish. But over a period of time, and once you've sort of established a connection and a relationship with the family, I think that allows you many, many opportunities to talk about these issues. And the second piece is really trying to meet families where they're at. So even though you as a physician may want to counsel them about things that could likely improve their situation, you have to really understand where the family's at and be a source of evidence-based, reliable, compassionate care regardless of where they're at. So for some families, when I'm talking about food, it's not about going plant-based or adopting a vegan diet, but it's really about what do you have access to, what changes are you looking to make, and working with them to make those happen. And I'm curious, too, to know about your connection to or your interest in climate issues. And I, I love that you're doing that work. I wish that all health professionals were as focused on food and climate and seeing those intersections. What was your first entry point into the urgency of climate change? I think that when I started to learn more about plant-based diets, I definitely came about it from the health aspects, but very quickly realized that it's also the most climate-friendly way of eating. And so we definitely incorporated aspects of climate change in the book, but it was a fairly small section. And actually, after I finished writing the book, I was surprised to be invited to be a part of some of the environmental conversations. Stanford has a climate and health group that's run by the students, and I was invited to be a faculty member on that panel. And it was very interesting to me that even within the climate space, very few people were talking about food and its role in climate change. And I was a little bit intimidated because I'm not a climate scientist. I am not an expert in the field of climate change. But I saw myself as having a unique role in talking about food and food's role in terms of mitigating some of the effects of climate change. So I'm sort of an accidental environmentalist, but I think that it's a really impactful place to be. And having the information and resources to be able to talk to people about how they can be successful in terms of meeting their nutrient requirements. And because it's very intimidating, I think, to make such a big dietary shift. And so I'm kind of an accidental environmentalist, but I I find that it's the people in this community are so inspiring and they have such a desire to care for our planet, to care for our communities. And I feel really fortunate to be a small part of that community. 
I think it's critically important, and I'm so glad that you're in that space. I am going to dive into pieces of your book and have you comment on those if you would. I'm going to start with the introduction, and you make a very important point, and that is not only does diet play an essential role in our health, but it also has the power to connect and serve as an expression of our culture and values. And when I read that, I sat back and I wondered about the American culture and our values and what they've progressed into being. And I think about the statistic that I recently read that said 65% of the calories that Americans consume are from highly processed packaged foods. And of course, if we reflect upon the impact on the climate, that whole idea of culture and values it gets lost in the American consumerism model. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think that model is spreading to other nations and countries as well. I think it's a little, I mean, kind of a unique decision because my parents were immigrants. They came from India. And so even though I was raised in America, I very much had traditional Indian values, especially at our dinner table. And I know that it requires a great degree of effort and attention and commitment to eat in a way that is based in these older traditions and cultural values. I think, you know, the American way, is a, a lot of it is about convenience. And as I mentioned, families are busy. I mean, I, I remember one time when my mom was visiting me, when my parents were visiting me and my children were quite a bit younger, she said to me, I don't know how you do it. This one's got soccer practice and this one's got after school this and after school that. And so I think the convenience factor in terms of the processed foods and what we're feeding our families, I know for sure it's not because parents don't want the very best for their children. They do. I haven't met a single parent that doesn't want the very best for their children. But I think it's, there's so many competing schedules and pressures and, you know, families where both parents are working, sometimes they're single parent households. And so I think the reliance and convenience food I never think it's like a, a parental issue or a poor parental issue. I think it's because families lack the resources, the time, and all of these things to make cooking happen on a more regular basis. I couldn't agree more. It's interesting. My grandparents were immigrants from Eastern Europe. And even though we come from very different parts of the globe, I too was raised with a reverence for food. And it's something that I wish we had more of or thinking about the person who is taking the time to purchase food and prepare it. That person also has the role of healthcare provider. And if only we looked at it that way more, and perhaps that is exactly what you're teaching in your classes at Stanford. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing there. So it's been an evolution. In the beginning, I, I've been teaching this some iteration of this course for the past five or so years. And in the beginning, I, I saw my role as basically showcasing and informing people about the advantages of plant-based diets, primarily from the health aspect. And as the course has evolved, I think that people, they're sort of understanding right now that plant-based diets protect our health, they protect the planet, and it's certainly a compassionate way of eating. And more and more people are wanting the actual tools, like how do I actually make this happen? So... The current iteration of this course is it, it's a one-hour presentation on all that sort of information. And then the following week, I do a cooking demonstration, and I showcase some simple ingredients. So tofu or lentils, simple things. The last class I did, actually, we I gave out the recipe, and people had the ingredient list ahead of time. 
And I did it in a way so that they could actually have dinner done by the end of the course, by the end of the hour-long talk. And so people are really wanting those hands-on tips, tools. How do I stock my pantry? How do I cook? Where can I find recipes? So it's kind of a balance of information and then actual tips that you can bring to your dinner table. Yeah. You know, we should probably step back because you re- you have referred to plant-based diet multiple times, and that is clearly the the word of the day, right, when it comes to how can I tweak my diet to make it more healthful both for myself, my family, and the planet or to protect the environment. But plant-based or plant-centered diets might mean different things to different people. How do you describe that in a nutshell? Yeah, and I think I use that term very much on purpose. And the reason that I say plant-based, plant-centered, I've even heard plant-forward, is because I want it to be as inclusive as possible. No matter where you are in your journey, I want it to be sort of an invitation. And so the way that I look at plant-based or plant-forward eating is that the focus is on really increasing as many whole plant foods in the diet. So things like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, and trying to minimize the level of processed foods as well as animal foods in the diet. And I think for some people, their aim or their goal may be to become plant exclusive. And for some people, it's going to be a little bit more of, you know, I may sort of cut back on these things, but I'm not going to go all the way. And so I think it's just trying to increase more whole plant foods and trying to minimize or exclude, depending on what your goals are, heavily processed foods and animal foods in the diet. Let me take one break, Dr. Shah, and remind everyone, if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Dr. Reshma Shah. She is a board-certified pediatrician and co-author of the book that we are focused on today. It's titled Nourish, the Definitive Plant-Based Nutrition Guide for Families. I agree with you in terms of helping people not be overwhelmed by making this huge dietary shift. But certainly, we have been recommending increasing the amounts of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains for a long time. I think that those recommendations, however, have taken on a new urgency. And so you do a wonderful job in outlining why we should be looking more towards a plant-centered diet. And I'm glad that you qualified that by saying, You know, we're not telling people that you can't ever eat meat or have dairy products. What you're saying is to just focus on increasing the numbers of plant-based foods that you include in the diet, and the rest will follow suit. You base that recommendation on excellent guidelines. You've got the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, which of course have been saying this for a while. You also, however, bring up the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which I think are critically important, as well as the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change. So you have a lot of building evidence to support this way of eating. Talk to me about the sustainable development goals. What made you hone in on those? Well, I think that as a pediatrician and as a mother, one of the things that I've come to realize is that dietary guidelines don't specifically address the greatest existential threat of our lifetime, which is the climate crisis, are entirely insufficient because healthy people without a healthy planet does not make for a prosperous long life. And so I think that as a pediatrician and definitely as a mother, 
I'm in a unique position to advocate for a planet that my children will be able to have a vibrant life on. And I think that any dietary guidelines that don't specifically address the climate crisis, I'm not interested in them, Yeah, to be perfectly honest, because we need an all-hands-on-deck approach. And if we can begin to make some shifts in our recommendations and our guidelines that put the climate crisis front and center, I think that's the only chance that we have. And even with regard to animal products, what I see a lot in the media is that all animal products are lumped together when really there is a huge difference between livestock that is raised totally on grass, you know, not fed grains, not given antibiotics and hormones, not raised in a feedlot. That system of livestock agriculture is contributing drastically to climate change. But if you look at the way in which livestock is raised, you also bring up the issues of humane qualities and compassion in everything that we do. I think that that level of nuance also needs to be folded into the way we eat. Absolutely. And I think that there may be a role for more sustainable agricultural practices. But I think that if you are going to have those as part of the recommendations, there also has to be a recommendation that regardless of the system of agriculture, we have to, as a, as a world, eat less animal products. Well, and I think, too, we have to consider how those plant foods are raised and processed. You've probably seen the trend, especially where you are in California, where you've got technology coming into the plant-based food world. And I have to sit back and think, has anybody calculated the carbon footprint for some of these processed plant foods? It's certainly not my area of expertise, but from what I've seen, a lot of these more processed plant foods may not necessarily have an enormous health advantage, but from what I can tell and from what I've learned, they still tend to have a benefit in terms of environment and certainly in terms of animal cruelty. And many people choose vegetarian diets because of their compassion for animals. Personally, I am an omnivore, but I am absolutely centered on a plant-focused diet, a plant-centered diet, where, as you mentioned in your book, looking at meat and other livestock products as sort of like a side dish, like maybe we once looked at a bowl of peas, now we have the plant as the central focus on the plate, and we're looking at those animal products as just add-ons as opposed to eating meat three times a day, every day. I yeah. want, and I have a. I was just going to say I have a lot of compassion because I am an exclusive plant eater. I don't eat any animal products, but I used to, mm-hmm. and so I understand what the challenges are. And I think whatever is going to allow you to eat more plants, and if it means that if I make making a commitment to be 100% plant based means that I won't be successful, then I don't think that that's something you should do. In right. my own personal situation, it was a very gradual process. So first, I sort of cut out meat, uh, such as beef and chicken. Eventually, I did fish and things like that. And for the, for a really long time, I was actually vegan at home and gave myself some flexibility when I was out to dinner or visiting friends. And so it's good to look different for every person. And I think it's really important to have some compassion for yourself as well, no matter where you are in the journey. Absolutely. And my own diet has changed as well. It's evolved. Whereas I never used to question where the meat came from and now I have the luxury of exclusively being able to purchase livestock directly from farmers. But that shift away from the industrial trough 
requires that we have the infrastructure throughout the country to support that way of eating. And that's where the policies come into play. You know, what are we subsidizing with our tax dollars? Are we providing environments where farmers can produce profitably the kinds of foods that you and I recommend? Or are we subsidizing the industrial model that doesn't serve people or planet very well? I couldn't agree more. And even what we see in terms of lunch programs and other supplemental nutrition programs, I think we need to look at these things very critically. Yeah. You know what I love, too, that you did, Dr. Shaw, is you bring up food safety from a perspective that I like to use as well. You know, when we think about food safety, so many of us think about listeria and campylobacter and salmonella, but you bring up very important pieces of food safety that must be part of the conversation, and that includes the plastics that surround our food or the BPA that or the bisphenol A this plastic compound that lines many of our canned foods, as well as heavy metals in children's food, especially, and you promote organic foods when possible. Thank you for that. Yeah, and I think that organic foods can be a great thing for many families, but our priority is always to encourage people to eat more plant foods. So if organic foods are not accessible to all families for the vast majority, if not all of my career, I've worked in low-income, under-resourced communities. And for those families, purchasing organic is simply just not accessible. So I think when it's available to you and if your family chooses to make that choice, I think it's it's very important. I think we're learning more about farming practices and environmental contaminants and things. And one simple example of how our dietary recommendations have changed because of some of these contaminants is when you think about first foods for babies, often it used to be fortified infant rice cereal. And we no longer recommend that because of the high arsenic levels in rice. So Mm. it's not that babies can't have any rice, but it shouldn't be the sole form of nutrition when you're weaning off of breast milk or formula. So I think the more that we know, the more specific our recommendations can be. And I think if organic is accessible, I think it's wonderful. But if the option is eat fruits and vegetables, but only organic, I would rather people eat fruits and vegetables. And you also recommend becoming familiar with the environmental working groups, Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. So if you want to know where especially those herbicides and pesticides are going to be concentrated, you've got a fairly good guide. Although, and I'm sure that you as a pediatrician are familiar with the research that's been done largely in California as well as Southern Florida, looking at what happens to farm workers' children when the pregnant farm worker is exposed to herbicide and pesticide sprays or those poor children that are growing up in these communities there, especially in California, where the air and the dust is so contaminated. So if we can choose the organic produce, you're not only benefiting yourself, but to also think about the farm workers that are also benefiting from that choice. Oh, absolutely. And we know, you know, even other aspects of climate change, it's the it's the communities that are least responsible for climate change that suffer the greatest consequences of climate change, whether it's poor air quality or antibiotic resistance, uh, increasing rates of asthma and other respiratory issues. So I think for those of us who have access and have resources, we should bear a greater responsibility. Mm, Absolutely. We've got about four minutes left, and I want to open it up to you to bring forth particular components of this book that you want to make sure we cover. So 
this might seem a little off topic, but I actually think one of the chapters that I think is most useful and maybe even most important is the chapter on family meals. And I say that because I think that the family dinner table can really be a source of so many wonderful things. We sort of joke in the chapter that if we could provide in a pill the benefits of family dinner, every family in the neighborhood would be lining up for a prescription because family meals are really protective. And so family, so for families that are really struggling in terms of both the what and the how of feeding, I think one place that parents can start is by creating a loving structure at the dinner table. Create, I think of creating a sort of a sanctuary, a respite for the day. And then once you sort of get into the routine of having that family table be a source of nurturing support, you can sort of work towards making some dietary shifts if you're looking to go more towards a plant-based diet. So adding some fresh fruit or a salad, some whole grains, things like that, but really starting by creating that sort of sanctuary space around the dinner table as an opportunity to connect and share your values Mm. and your traditions. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because I remember years ago reading about some research that was done at the University of Minnesota that looked specifically at those benefits that you spoke about earlier, how children who have family meals get better grades in school, they have less stress. But I also think that the environment around the family table is critical. You know, I remember growing up, we would eat in a, on a little table in my kitchen, and the television was never on. It was a time when we ate and we spoke to each other lovingly. And that's not always the case, though, in many homes. How would you advise parents to create the best eating environment in their homes? Well, I think that if you've had some habits that are really entrenched, uh, be patient. It can take some time to undo them or to create new habits. I think parents can really be an example. So you have to model the behavior. Asking your children not to bring their phones to the dinner table is it's not going to go over very well if you yourself are bringing your phone to the dinner table. So model the example, have some patience. And I also recommend don't use dinner time as a opportunity to talk about topics that tend to be difficult, like a poor grade on a math test or forgetting to do chores. The average American family spends 17 minutes at, at dinner. So use that time to connect. One of the things that I found really interesting in this family dinner research was that when families share stories about when mom and dad were young or grandparents or aunts and uncles, it gives kids a greater sense of family connectedness. So it might seem silly or trivial, but those things practiced with consistency is really what creates the foundation for healthy mealtime. So model the behavior, have a sense of calm, bring some patience to the table, and I think be very intentional. So set the table, make it a priority. It doesn't have to be fancy. It's not about fancy china, but make sure there's no clutter on the table, have the place set, and get your kids involved, whether it's setting the table, cleaning up, or even cooking part of the meal. I love that because that goes right full circle back to your very important introduction comment about using that essential time together 
as an expression of our culture and values and bringing those stories to the table. I think that's really brilliant, Dr. Shaw. I really want to thank you for that. We have to close, unfortunately, because we are out of time. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Reshma Shah. She is a board-certified pediatrician and co-author of the award-winning book, Nourish, the definitive plant-based nutrition guide for families. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Shah. Oh, thank you so much for having me.